Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Yosemite is one of the most renowned and iconic national parks in the world. It's home to giant trees, stunning landscapes, and the small yet endearing Yosemite toad. Okay, it might not be the first Yosemite species many people think of, but in today's episode, we're going to learn all about the landscape genetics of this fascinating high-altitude amphibian, as we hear from Dr. Paul Mayer, lead author of the recent heredity paper, Landscape Genetics of a Subalpine Toad, Climate Change Predicted to Induce Upward Rain Shifts Via Asymmetrical Migration Corridors. And the first thing is, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah. Well, my path definitely wasn't a straight line. (laughs) I'm more of a software engineer these days, but some might call me kind of a field biologist who got out of control. (laughs) So my current role is a population geneticist at Family Tree DNA, where, you know, that's the oldest really genetic genealogy company that's out there. And I help invent ancestry tools to help people, you know, uncover the secrets of their ancestry, of where their ancestors came from. But I'm also a former biologist at U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS. Some abroad might not know this, but the USGS doesn't just do geology. They do a lot of biological work as well. So I worked on reptiles and amphibians, in particular, the species we'll talk about today, the Yosemite toad, tracking where they live and their distribution, but also uh, small mammals and botany. And this paper grew out of my PhD research. So I did my PhD work at San Diego State University and the University of California at Riverside. Perfect. So you were saying that this paper comes out of your PhD work, and what it focuses on is Yosemite toads. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about these toads and why they're interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're restricted to the Sierra Nevada, which are objectively the most beautiful mountain range in the world. Not that I'm biased in any way. (laughs) Um, It's just a breathtakingly cool place. It's a mixture of montane and subalpine habitats where you see glaciers and boulder fields and you're above tree lines. So you can just see for miles. So they're only found at high elevation, which when you see these critters is a bit surreal because they're kind of these squishy little, you know, denizens of the the former ice age, if you will. And then they only breed in meadows. So, you know, Yosemite National Park, which is where we did most of this research, is a pretty vast wilderness and meadows only comprise about 3% of the landscape. And meadows themselves are kind of difficult to define, but, you know, there are lots of different types, but when you know one, you sort of see it and you know it. And, um, you know, they're only breeding in those little islands of habitat, which is pretty cool. They're long lived because they live at high elevation. So they only have, you know, six months, in some cases, only three months out of the year to be active to accrue enough biomass so they can breed the next year and and live on. So they're long lived, they can live in excess of 15, maybe even 20 years. And then just the way they look is super cool. They're what we call sexually dichromatic, meaning that the males and females are vastly different colors and patterns. So unlike many birds, the the females are kind of the pretty ones in this case. Males are a bit drab, kind of yellow, olive color, maybe brown. It depends on the time of season. And the females are this black background with these really cool looking copper and yellow and, and brown blotches with kind of a white border, like a cream to white border. And they just, they look so cool. And there's so much variation among the different individuals. So just breathtakingly cool critter in a very interesting place. And then related to this study, they disperse incredibly long distances over 
potentially really treacherous terrain. So they've been <laughs> seen migrating uh, over a kilometer or excess of a kilometer in one season. Yeah, they're very interesting. Like the difference between the males and females is startling. Like they look like completely different species. Yeah. And I know that uh, you said at the start that you've kind of moved away from this area of research, but I'm curious as to what it was that pulled you into this study system initially. Like what motivated you to study them? For the purpose of this study, it's really some of the previous research we did. So we revealed in a couple of other papers some exciting new aspects of their ecology and evolution. I mean, for starters, their phylogeography. So for the last 2 million years or so, which is about how long a species has existed, at least we think, ice sheets have formed and receded and advanced again. And it hasn't just been this one event, but this sort of oscillation of this barrier that has split them into different lineages. So that's really strongly shaped their evolution. And in fact, we've seen that not only have they formed lineages, which are kind of, you can think of those as proto-species, not only have they formed lineages, but those lineages sometimes have come back together to form hybrid lineages, if you will. So that's really interesting. And we've kind of pulled that into another study where we look at their gene pool boundaries. So although they breed in meadows, it's not for granted that that's the unit of a population or a gene pool. So we studied their gene pool boundaries and found that indeed, usually a meadow is about the limits of where a population is, but it's not quite that simple because you also have meadows that are close together in these neighborhoods, meadow neighborhoods. And within those neighborhoods, not all meadows are equal. Some meadows are more important or better habitat than others. So we call the really important ones hubs because they tend to attract more migration. And the ones that are at the periphery, we call satellites, they tend to blink in and out of having occupancy. And so that dynamic is really important. We found some environmental drivers of that, but we wanted to scale that up, see how that works on the entire species, or at least a, a sampling of the entire species. So that kind of led us to this study because we still had a lot of question marks about their uh, ecology and their conservation. And also because climate change has always been hypothesized to be a major threat, but the specifics are unknown. We don't know exactly what could be hurting them the most. So that was something we wanted to look into. Hmm. It's interesting that you're saying that this is one paper in a much larger project of work. What was it that you were specifically aiming to investigate in this study? Was it that climate change aspect? Yeah, climate change, but you know, specific drivers of climate change. So we wanted to identify very specific environmental drivers such as you know, climate, but also maybe topography. In previous research, it's been shown that topography or the kind of slopiness, if you will, of the landscape or the, the contours of the landscape are an important driver of their genetic structure. So we knew that to already be the case, but, you know, fine scale attributes of climate and topography, as well as things like soil, soil composition and vegetation features using very fine scale, high resolution data. So yeah, specific drivers of how climate and climate change affect connectivity. And then getting to climate change, how will that affect not just the magnitude of migration, but the direction or the, the asymmetry of migration. In other words, will climate change result in a rain shift? Fascinating. And I guess the first thing you'd have to do in this study then really is to get out into this iconic national park and actually find some toads. So what was the experience of collecting your data like? Yeah, well, exactly. Yosemite is vast. It's about 3000 square kilometers. I looked this up before we started this call, but that's about twice the size of greater London, which has about <laughs> 7 million people. <laughs> so, you know, in contrast, Yosemite has maybe a few thousand people at any one time, probably far fewer during the winter. Um, so it's this vast wilderness and so we took advantage of another concurrent study that I was also working on, which targeted the about 300 known toad meadows. 
there's maybe about 3,000 or so total in the park. So only about 10% of them are actually occupied by toads. Hmm. And it takes, you know, better part of a decade to figure out which ones because occupancy is not easy to detect necessarily. And they don't breed in every meadow every year. So we knew which ones they were actually using. We hiked hundreds of miles, if not thousands, (laughs) combined (laughs) amongst uh, a whole slew of field biologists, climbed lots of mountains, saw a lot of cool sunsets, ate horrible food and had blisters (laughs) and uh, lots of close encounters with things like lightning and and deadly rivers and mountain lions in one case. If you want any stories, I'm happy to tell one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you have a fun story, then I'm sure people would love to hear it. So during one of the reconnaissance trips that we did one year, we were looking at the snowpack and this was a very above average (laughs) snowpack year. There was a lot of snow and this was July, which you might think of as summer, but it's really springtime up there because, you know, that's when things start to melt. And so my friend and I were doing this recon trip and I was just describing to him what to do in a lightning storm because he'd never really been up close in one. And I was telling him all the usual things like, you know, you can actually see your your hair stand up and, and smell ozone and hear crackling, all this stuff. Meanwhile, I'm just oblivious. And he says, Paul, Paul, and I I don't even notice it. He says, just duck. And a bolt of lightning hits the rock that we're standing under. (laughs) (laughs) And as we continue upstream, we have to cross the river, the King's River, farther upstream. And we're, we're, we're trying to assess if that's going to be safe or not. So we're, we're hiking upstream. We look, and of course the rain has brought the water level up, but it's already high because of the snowpack. So we're, we're watching this giant tree about four foot, five foot in diameter, this dead red fir tree floating down the river and it disappears. It catches a, a riffle and just goes under, disappears. And about 10 seconds later, it explodes into the air in like three pieces, like a toothpick. And we just look at each other like, nope, we're not doing that. Not this trip. (laughs) So a lot of uh, fun experiences, but it can be a dangerous place if you don't know what you're doing. That is some very extreme sounding field work and kind of all in the uh, dedication to find some toads. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, after risking your life to collect this data, um, what is it that you actually did? Yeah. So we aim to do landscape genetics, which is the study of how environment drives genetic migration. So in other words, where and why does the DNA move across the landscape? Because that affects the persistence of a species, how connected they are and how much they're sharing DNA to preserve diversity. So we did that, but we had some major innovations to our study that aren't normally done. So for starters, Toads don't necessarily use a single highway, if you will, between meadows. So we considered environmental corridors, which integrate all possible routes. And I should say there are other methods that do this, but not quite in the same way. The way we did it allows us to model things a bit more specifically. So we did that. We also, um, migration is not just the act of dispersal. It's also mating success. So first, you know, tadpoles at the source meadow, they have to successfully grow to adulthood to have any dispersers. Then they have to successfully disperse to a new meadow. And then third, they have to successfully breed at that destination meadow. Otherwise, there won't be any signal for us to detect later on. So that means that meadow environment matters potentially as much as the corridors. So that's not often considered, but we tried to consider both environments for both life phases, kind of tadpole slash breeding versus dispersal. We also considered phylogenetic structure. That's not often considered, but it's really important because both lineages and the isolation of lineages, as well as modern day gene flow can affect the genetic data. And we only want to get at the latter, at gene flow. So it's important to disentangle those two. And then we also didn't just measure the magnitude of gene flow. Like I said, we were trying to get at the direction or the asymmetry. So in other words, if every pair of meadows has kind of a random direction, then there's no pattern to it. 
But if there's a pattern to it, if there's a net migration direction, then there's going to be some signal of where they're moving overall. And we wanted to get at that. And then last, this is kind of a more technical point, but in essence, for climate change forecasting, because we wanted to figure out what, what's going to happen in the future, right? So we use a pretty major innovation there. Machine learning methods typically are not so good at forecasting. Imagine you have temperature ranging from 10 degrees to 25 degrees, but now the future data set has 30 degrees Celsius, let's say. Well, machine learning methods are not necessarily good at extrapolating because they haven't observed that value. So we use a method that is really good at extrapolating, and we found that to really improve our results. Mm. And I guess mentioning your results, what were some of the key things that you were finding? Well, so we found climate is a major contributor to Yosemite toad genetic structure today, and it's projected to force toads even higher up and in an east or northeastward direction in Yosemite National Park. So this is really important because this you know, climate change has not really been studied in a very specific way or using genetic data before. It's always been speculated that climate and climate change would be important, but it's never been looked at this way before. So we found that snowpack variability, in other words, the difference between years of how much snow there is in a meadow, is a big piece of that. And also the after effects like runoff and groundwater recharge, which affects the hydrology of meadows. And topographically, we found southern facing slopes and the associated heat retention play a role. Vegetation wise, we found rocky and shrubby habitats were the most important vegetation type between meadows. And inside of meadows, we found that a sort of gradient of meadow hydrology from wet to dry was found to be important. And then also, interestingly, we found that the trail system could be a potential inhibiting factor. That's something that should be looked at for conservation management purposes. And last, we found some interesting patterns that are driving the directionality of toad movement. So for one, there's net movement toward larger and better connected meadows. And we found this to be the case in previous work on a smaller scale, but it's interesting we found the same kind of pattern across the whole park. And we also found that contrasting environmental features like meadow vegetation, willow cover, which they can use for safety or for hibernating, the solar input, the amount of solar radiation, and also snow melt-off patterns play important roles. Hmm, fascinating. And I think the, I guess it's kind of interesting there because you're kind of talking about climate change, forcing them to kind of change the distribution. And you've obviously found a lot of like really key habitats for them. And I wonder what you think sort of big picture this study is kind of telling us about the future of these toads in the face of climate change, and also maybe how conservation efforts and management might need to change. Yeah, no, it's a really important question. Well, I mean, snow uh, is important to this species. Snow can account for 80% of the water budget of toad meadows during the dry summer months. But that's not the whole story because not all meadows are equal. By you know the end of the century, 2100, the Sierras will be about 7 degrees Celsius warmer, have something like 60% less snowpack volume, and melt off about two months earlier. But the lower meadows, the lower elevation meadows are going to be hit the hardest. And so our results agree with some of the previous survey work that suggested that Yosemite toads are susceptible to climate change, but more so at lower elevations in the montane forest. And so we may be witnessing a full-on rain shift because of climate change. Some of those studies in the 90s showed that you know, these low elevation sites are potentially blinking out. It's the old, you know, move or adapt, migrate or adapt. They need to move upward to keep pace with a changing climate or adapt to it. So that's not to say that migration, which is this study, is not the whole story. I mean, adaptation is surely another reason that toad populations may blink out in the lower forest. And I'm not going to say too much now because we have another manuscript in review, but <laughs> stay tuned. We may have a similar pattern looking at adaptation. Nice. Well, I will look forward to seeing that study come out. 
And obviously the study is highlighting some really important things for these specific toads. But I wonder what you think the sort of broader take-home message in this paper is. So does this study kind of hold any messages for people working in other systems or other species? Yeah. Well, first, uh, for the toad itself, for the otoad, as we call them sometimes, <laughs> we've known that they're in decline for a while. This study gives the first confirmation that climate change is playing a role. And you know, as I said before, their connectivity is essential for long-term persistence of the species. So land managers could prioritize likely climate change corridors and possible refugia. And they could also monitor some of these patterns more closely on an ecological level. But, you know, climate change is forcing subpine animals and plants all over the world to higher and higher elevations. So we're adding to that literature. We're showing that, you know, that's true using new methods. We're kind of looking at this from a new, unique perspective and finding a similar pattern. And also, I think for other landscape genetic practitioners, we've described a novel way of studying genetic connectivity and range shifts. So hopefully other researchers find this method useful and can apply it to their species. Mm, yeah, definitely. Your methods are very interesting and they generate some really beautiful figures as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> well thank you very much. And uh, yeah, so thank you very much for taking the time to share this research with us and telling us a bit about your yotoads. They are a really beautiful species and it's a really wonderful paper that I hope people will now go and give a read. So just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind us what your paper is called, but also tell us about your co-authors who helped bring us this work. Yeah, definitely. So the title is Landscape Genetics of a Subalpine Toad, Climate Change Predicted to Induce Upward Range Shifts via Asymmetrical Migration Corridors. And my co-authors include Amy Vandergast, who's my former co-advisor, and she's a research geneticist at the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, Stephen Astoya is the director of the USDA Climate Hub in California. Andy Aguilar is a professor at Cal State Los Angeles. And Andy Bahonic, last but certainly not least, is my former advisor and professor at San Diego State University. And I would just also add thank you to the literal army of field biologists who helped me collect these samples with, without whom it wouldn't have been possible. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks to Paul. You can find his paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.